If you're not subscribed to the Fashion League newsletter, you're missing out. Our email newsletter helps you prepare for your next career move. The newsletter has our job board, which features listings from some of your favorite brands and publishers. Plus, you can use our handy career guide to figure out which direction you'd like to take your career next. We also throw in some for fashion trivia, of course, and some other fun stuff, but you have to subscribe to the newsletter to discover for yourself. So you can head to the show notes. There's a link to sign up there or head over to www.fashionleague.io. Hey, Michaela Bloomfield here. And for this episode of the Fashion League podcast, I interview fashion designer Kim Ellery. She's the creative director behind the luxury fashion label Ellery. It's the cool girl brand that became a red carpet favorite with stylish women like Rihanna, Kate Blanchett, and Solange, just to name a few. Growing up in Perth, Kim knew early on that she wanted to become a fashion designer, even when others challenged her on the idea. Ultimately choosing to abandon her studies at London's Central St. Martin's, which is one of the top fashion schools in the world with graduates like Stella McCartney and Alexander McQueen. Kim instead started her fashion journey manning the fashion closet at Rush Magazine. Kim launched Ellery in 2007 when she was 23 and she was still working at the magazine. By 2014, she was debuting Ellery at Paris Fashion Week. Today, with decades of experience in the industry, Kim has also been vocal about the need to restructure the fashion schedule, which, as it currently stands, is an antiquated system that caters primarily to department stores and massive conglomerates like LVMH, which owns Louis Vuitton, Dior, Givenchy, etc., and Keering, another conglomerate that owns Gucci, Balenciaga, Saint Laurent, yada yada. And speaking of antiquated systems that need revamping, Parsons Paris organized two days of seminars discussing transformations in fashion print media. And as I mentioned previously, my (laughs) doctoral research for my dissertation, it covers business model innovation in media and publishing. So this is right up my alley. Um, (laughs) During one of the conversations, Miles Sosha, the editor-in-chief of WWD, Women's Wear Daily, he mentioned that the publication's website metrics indicate that fashion show reviews don't actually capture a lot of readers online, which is an interesting reveal considering some of the murmurs about how fashion criticism, like the writing style and the content, has gone pretty stale. If you're on fashion Twitter or even fashion TikTok, maybe not fashion TikTok, it's kind of weird over there, but maybe just on fashion Twitter or if you've been over on fashion Instagram, you're likely to have encountered some of the new voices with fresh takes on fashion criticism. Uh, Speaking with a journalist at Fashionista, one such fresh voice in 
fashion criticism is fashion archivist Kim Russell, and her online handle is The Kimbino. She gave insight into what makes these new-aged fashion critics so popular online. So her quote that I'm taking from the article, she says, I think it does well because I've made fashion education and entertainment quick and easy and accessible to have. She goes on, you can also get involved in my pages by interacting with others who are like-minded. For legacy publications, um, I'm back here. This That was the end of the quote. So for, I'm thinking for legacy publications, there's something to explore here, obviously. Uh, today we see Pierre, or his online handle is Pamboy. He's now leading GQ France. And after beginning his foray into fashion by using social media back in like 2015 to publish fashion criticism, he was able to capture an engaged audience. And now he's moved up in fashion through a untraditional route. So we know fashion criticism is an important tool for designers and it's a necessary archival instrument, but How can legacy publications bring fashion criticism back to relevancy? Well, that sounds like a dissertation topic. (laughs) Anyway, back to today's interview. It's with Kim Ellery, the fashion designer behind Ellery. Let's jump into our interview. Hi, Kim. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for being on the Fashion League podcast today. Let's just start from the beginning. Where are you from and how did you end up in Paris? Well, I grew up in Perth, which is in Western Australia. Yeah, I I don't know how I developed a, a desire to move to France, but I think it started quite early on when I had French as a subject at school. It was a compulsory subject that we took from grade four, which is when you're eight years old. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of developed this fascination in the culture and the country and the language a little bit for me. And when I grew up and moved to Sydney, I accidentally fell into a job at a fashion magazine. I was assisting the editor and working in the fashion closet and running basically all the sort of sample call-ins for the different shoots. And that is when I realized that there was a kind of a gap in the market that I um, thought I could fill. And when I decided to work on filling that gap, I decided that my end goal and mission would be to relocate to Paris and show on the world stage, which is Paris Fashion Week. Just rewinding, when you moved to Sydney, did you always knew you wanted to leave like your hometown and move to like a big city? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't ever unhappy growing up in a in a smaller city. I think it was a beautiful place to, to grow up. And as a kid, we spent a lot of time in nature, a lot of time at the beach and in the bush. And I think that was really important for my creative development. And even today, I think that's where I find, I suppose, inspiration or it's the place where my mind can rest for Mm -hmm. me to feel inspired, to think about the art of creation and design and and concepts. 
When did you know you were a creative person? Well, my mother is an artist. So from pretty much the beginning, I I spent a lot of time around creatives and in her art studio, and which was a shared space with other artists. And it really exposed me to lots of different mediums and, and ways to express yourself. She went to university when I was nine and did her Bachelor of Art. So I think it was kind of an important age for me as well to be around her while she went through that stage in her life of really also discovering her creative voice and language. And yeah, I just remember really enjoying it and it feeling completely natural. It wasn't like art was this other thing that was non-academic for us. It was just a part of everyday life. Do you have any additional creative interests, obviously design, but do you have any other mediums that you were interested early on and do you still keep up with those interests? For me, it was always art was the first passion and I discovered fashion at a much later age when I sort of moved to Sydney actually it was the time where I think I really discovered the concept of fashion for me before that it was only about creation and and I taught myself how to pattern make because I was interested in, in the idea of creating clothing but it was more in an art space rather than that sort of commercial fashion space yeah in terms of other creative fields I when I graduated high school I enrolled to become an architect because I thought that's something I could be really interested in but I decided to pursue a a life in fashion in the end. You mentioned working in a magazine publication and seeing that there was a gap in the market but when did you first decide that fashion design could be a career for you? I think it was always something I wanted to do. I remember being on the school bus one day and we were all choosing our career path. It was kind of that age where the teachers started to ask us, you know, what we'd like to do when we left school. (laughs) And I knew, you know, for me, I knew I wanted to be a fashion designer, but one of my friends kind of quizzed me on that. She said, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, I suppose uh, the same way you become a doctor, I think you must have to study and and figure it out from there. And, but she was kind of, you know, being a little bit teasing, judgmental and yeah, a bit, and I don't know if that's really a job that you can do. I didn't actually know that was what you did at the time. I was, I was just guessing, but as it turns out, that's exactly how it works. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find that school is, well, obviously you did it, but Did you find that schooling is necessary or required for becoming a fashion designer, working in fashion design? I think it it definitely helps, but my path actually kind of bypassed Mm -hmm. the education side of fashion. Well, in the end, I actually decided to... I didn't really decide a lot at that stage of my life, actually. I was offered a job at the magazine, which is called Rush, I was doing an unpaid internship first and, and they, they liked me and offered me this uh, role. And I had to say, oh, I'm so sorry, but I just enrolled in St. Martin's in London and I'm going there to do some studies for the summer. And they said, that's totally fine. We'll hold the job for when you get back, which was really nice of them. I was lucky in that regard. And so when I was in London, I thoroughly enjoyed that course. It was, you know, it wasn't very long, but it really gave a really interesting point of view on how to approach fashion. And, and I found that he really, the lecturer was really focusing on stuff I could relate to from my artistic training and I I, for a moment there I thought maybe I should stay in London and do the full degree 
But I thought, no, this opportunity at the magazine is far too important and rare. And I was only 21, I think, at the time. In Australia, in this magazine role, I felt like I was too young to really take on big ideas at that time. But knowing in the back of my head, my end goal would be to one day launch a brand. You always had creating your own brand in the back of your mind. Like when you said you were going to go be a designer, you knew you wanted to start your own brand at that time? Yeah, for me, it wasn't really an option to work at another brand because I didn't have the education. So I think I thought it would be more efficient if I just practiced as I launched my own project. And because I was working at the magazine, I didn't want to leave that role at that time. And so I went to my editor and just asked if she would mind if I did a project out of work hours and but just wanted to be transparent with her, which of course she was very supportive of. And I think looking back, I mean, there's, there's so many different paths you can take. But for me, it was I knew that what I was doing was really practicing in my local market to improve to a point where I felt ready to to make the big jump over to Europe. So for me, that was preconceived. Even though I was super young, I I thought, you know, at least I can practice here. I can harness my craft. I can learn and make mistakes. And that will be fine because then at some point I'll be ready to graduate into the next stage, which will be the world stage. You've mentioned practicing your craft in your local market. So what benchmarks did you give yourself to say, okay, I'm outgrowing this space here. It's time to move on to a bigger market. I think all of that came quite organically as we would come to Paris with the collection. I mean, that first trip to Paris with the collection was kind of a a scary one in a way for me because we didn't have many contacts and it was still quite young, the brand. But for me, it was really important that we put all resources into bringing the brand to, to France. So I took a room at Hotel de Clion and had some buyers come through and wrote some orders and it went really well. So it was luckily a success and meant that I was able to continue to come back twice a year, then four times a year with pre-collections. And then at some point we started showing on the official off-calendar of Paris Fashion Week. And and after a few shows that way, the Champs and Decal invited us to be on the official calendar, which was a huge achievement. We were only the, I think, the third ever Australian and second only ever Australian base brand to be invited on the schedule in history. So that was a really exciting time for me to feel like we'd done the necessary work and taken the necessary steps over many years of collections and meetings and had built a healthy distribution internationally. And now it was time to decide what the, I mean, that was probably one of the most challenging times for me as a designer to really, to really say, okay, this collection is the first time I'm showing my work and this work has a history, you know, what, what do I want to say and what can I bring from the past and also take from the future or give to the future. And I think, yeah, that was always a really, those big landmark moments are always quite challenging because you feel the pressure of of having to do do what is the right thing. And then obviously in the creative process that can be hard. It's like having writer's block or something sometimes, you know, you think it should be easy, but actually it's not. When you're taking meetings at the Hotel Creon and having all that feedback, how did you implement that into your business? What was that process like? Well, at that point, we were already set up and functioning as a wholesaling brand and we had international clients. It was just a matter of growing that client base. And I think I was just really relieved at the time to have met new clients and brought back new orders from new clients because although it was my brand and I had no 
investors. It was always self-funded. I had a CEO that I greatly respected his opinion. And so I was really happy to be able to go back and say to him, ta-da, we got, we got some new orders. We have some new clients in the States and uh, in Europe. And, you know, it was uh, the beginning of a, a time that the business just continued to grow and grow and grow. And that was also good for me to feel like my intuition and the goal that I said originally was the right goal, that it was the one that would grow the business. And I had, you know, previously had people say to me, you know, my, not just any people, people who in business, in fashion business, who were a bit more conservative and who were mentors say to me, I don't know, it's not really a good way to spend money, spending money, going to Paris to not even to look for other clients. I think just the concept of spending money to go to France to show the collection to them just seemed a little, didn't make sense, but I knew in my gut that that was the right way to go and and the best way to grow the business. And I was happy to be able to go back and say, actually, it was the right decision. And here we are, you know, et voila, we were able to make a a really um, strong impact in the market. I saw that you had a sustainable collection when did you first start thinking about sustainability and what type of business goals or do you have tied to any measurable business goals tied to sustainability? I think for me, a sustainability was something that didn't ever, wasn't like it was a new idea that came through. I mean, I had a, a good friend of mine who lived in New York and worked in the, the world of sustainability many years ago, way before it became the byline on every single fashion brand, thankfully, on their, you know, their mission statement. And, and she would talk to me about how important it was. And, but I mean, for what, how we work, we always were making our goods locally, using quality product with the intention that the pieces would be used for a lifetime, you know, falling into the slow fashion category. It, it was something that when we looked into it, we realized we were already ticking a lot of the boxes. And it was just about ensuring that we reduced our footprint where we could. And part of that was moving our production to Italy from Australia. So we would, wouldn't have to be flying fabrics across the world and then flying the goods from Australia back out to the world. So we started to produce in a very small local environment in Italy to make sure that that carbon footprint would be reduced and also having access to the extremely high quality, extreme, that's not good English, but the high quality craftsmanship and savoir-faire from that region, which obviously is a lot harder to find in a young country like Australia and a non-manufacturing, not easy to manufacturing country like Australia. So that was a big part of one of the biggest changes we made in the business with that in mind. And we also, um, when we worked on, I think the collection you're referring to is the collection with Duran Montink. Yes. Who um, is an amazing human being who has spent his time working on upcycling luxury fashion and his his idea to just mix brands and take dead stock and, and breathe new life into it. I thought was just so fantastic and it was at the beginning of COVID we decided that we would contact Duran and we'd met through friends and we wanted decided we wanted to collaborate together and I would propose that he access stock we had hanging in our warehouse and instead of sending that stock off to discount sale uh, outlets which is often part of the process or as some of the luxury houses do you know burn their goods we wanted to give uh, Duran access to that product and so that together we could upcycle the pieces and for me it was exciting to see him take those pieces and and those pieces that I had designed and created and, and watch him re 
rework them and cut them up and collage them together, pieces that were from different seasons and years even and completely different, I suppose, uh, design background. I mean, when you design a collection, you, you go along with a strong theme and there's a colour palette. It was great to see him mix all of that together and that the result being pieces that felt, for me, really fresh, but more importantly, that he would breathe new life and soul into so that this garment that was once hanging as with an energy that was about taking up warehouse space, not having sold, you know, all these sort of negative ideas. And then all of a sudden it was this new garment that was exciting and beautiful and fresh and never before seen and bespoke and, and also limited. A lot of these pieces were from a, a, a very limited st- uh, stock, so we were able to keep it really exclusive as well, which was super nice. And it also helped me really think about ways that we can, instead of milling new fabric, that we can buy from existing warehouses and, and use and anything new to be fibres that are, are more uh, sustainable sustainable for the environment. I think that in fashion as well, especially in luxury fashion, they've been very, well, design, sort of the more design end, they've been very slow in the raw material category to really present in their collections sustainable fabric. So we were going to Premier Vision looking for sustainable fabrics and so many mills just hadn't started yet and it was so frustrating but it's really good now to see that there's been huge uh, leaps in that area in the last sort of four or five years. You talked about having your manufacturing based in Italy, which was one of the locations hit early on by the COVID pandemic. How did COVID impact your business and how did you work around it, especially considering like the supply chain issues that the pandemic presented? It's been very challenging, I think, from a number of different angles. But considering what has unfolded in the last two years, I've count myself as very lucky and blessed. We were working in Italy and they of course got hit extremely hard and the supply chain was also focusing on making medical clothing Um, so a lot of the supply chain got allocated to that which was fantastic so the factories that we normally will work with were making masks and robes for the hospital work, uh, work, the medical workers and I think I mean at that point we just were so it didn't really matter what was happening with the business at that time. We are just so concerned with the welfare of everyone that was being hit so hard. But as, as things have unfolded over the last few years, I think it's really put a, pushed a reset button on the industry. And I think there's, you know, a lot of factories that have really suffered and are looking for work. And, and so that was interesting as well that there was, breaks in supply chain but there was also new opportunities arose because factories that had always been a capacity were almost you know I was getting a lot of emails saying if you know we had work to give them and that kind of thing so that was an interesting time as well just to see how things shifted in in the the way the industry worked and to see people kind of really opening their minds as to ways to work as well and being a lot more collaborative than I think they would have been in the past. What are you currently looking forward to now that we're two years into this pandemic? It's shifted a lot of people's schedules. How has your work been and how? what are you looking forward to? For me, the last year especially has been one where I decided to take a step back and just slow down. We kind of continue to make collections through the first year of COVID, 
but I realized at some point that it was a good opportunity to really step back and do a little bit of um, have some a moment to reflect and also have time to really put everything in order to prepare for the next chapter ahead. It's been interesting taking time off. I mean, when I say I took a the last year off from making normal collections on the normal schedule, but still working on other projects that came into our world, which was um, which you'll hear more about in the coming months. Yeah, it meant that it was a good time, I think, for us to say, okay, well, let's just focus on taking things a little slower than usual, focusing on making these um, exciting collaborations that we'll be releasing in 2022, and then really thinking about what's next to next for the brand because to me I think fashion right now and doing a show it all seems a little irrelevant and I think it's important that for me when we do do a show and present a collection that it's it makes sense it makes sense for us and it makes sense for zeitgeist and our clients and and people who love the brand so I think later this year hopefully things will start to feel a little bit more less heavy there's a really heavy energy I feel in in France Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's so in lots of places, but personally, I really found it quite different here since since COVID. And in that, you know, we felt like there was this hope, and we felt like the vaccine was going to bring all the solutions. And and since it hasn't, you know, it's still sort of this heavy cloud hanging above us, and which tends to also leave when the sun comes out, and, and you forget a little bit about. Well, also the cases I think get a lot less extreme. So for me, it's taking this year to really make smaller projects but projects that are really meaningful to me personally so that, yeah, we're not doing things just for the sake of doing, just for the sake of staying in the, the schedule that the fashion industry has dictated. You know, all of that scheduling never worked anyway. So mm-hmm. why should we be keeping up with it now at, of all times? You know, the whole schedule has been set up for the mega luxury brands to do their thing because they're a vertical supply chain majoritively. They can control their businesses and it's never made sense for the little guys and the wholesalers and as evidenced by the countless brands that don't survive. So, I mean, that's a conversation we were having well before COVID. We skipped showing during Ready to Wear and showed a collection during Couture, which was a huge risk to take, which, you know, should have made sense. But actually, I feel like the Federation were just weren't yet quite open to the idea of that they actually have two types of businesses to take care of, not just Dior or Chanel. You know, they really have to think of a way that their scheduling should work for the many, many small brands that are also have chosen Paris as the place to show their collections. Well, on that note, and to lift the mood a little bit, are you yeah. ready to play faux or fashion? It's a trivia game. Very <laughs> easy. I'm going to give you three fashion stories, three headlines. And I'm going to read one and you're going to tell me whether it's a true fashion story. So it's fashion or if it's oh, false. I made it up completely out of my head. That's it. Ready? Okay. Okay. (laughs) First question. Marie Antoinette pioneered equestrian fashion for women when she decided to go against what was proper for a lady and had custom riding wear made for her to get closer to the king. Is that faux or fashion? Uh, I think that's fashion. Of course. <laughs> that's <laughs> like her personality, her brand is to go against the grain and what is proper. Probably why she was executed. But anyway, <laughs> next, next question. 
According to Forbes, the Japanese-owned zipper manufacturer, YKK, which is headquartered in Tokyo, is also one of America's best manufacturers. Is that faux or fashion? I'd say it's fashion. It is fashion. They made a Forbes article about how the Japanese manufacturer who's been in America, I'm sure you're familiar with them. <laughs> That's why this question. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're one of the biggest manufacturers in America. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're every, everywhere. I'm sure everyone can look at a zipper they're wearing now and it's YKK. And your final question is... A French biotech startup has developed a new textile for the manufacture of clothing that becomes compostable after approximately 17 washes. Is that faux or fashion? So you mean the fabric is compostable or the... Yes. I mean, I'm going to guess this and say fashion. It's it faux. Like... I made it up. <laughs> they, they should do it. <laughs> they should. I've heard they're doing the reverse where they're making plastic out of fashion. Old-fashioned, yeah. because, I mean, we have there's so much landfill. I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The True Cost, but it's mm. brilliant and very eye-opening to what what the repercussions are of fast fashion. So it's great that we have these scientists working on solutions such as that, and your idea should be a real one. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really yet, but we do have a bunch of startups, actually Evolved by Nature, it's a startup that I recently interviewed for the Fashion Week website. They're doing some interesting stuff with recyclable fabrics and all that biotech stuff. So definitely an article to read and a company to check out. But that is it. That is the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this gloomy day. I feel like every day that I've been recording has been a gloomy day. But <laughs> Yeah, it's very gloomy right now. But no, thank you for having me. And it's been my absolute pleasure to be here. Use the promo code RTRFashionly to get 40% off your membership at Rent the Runway. A Rent the Runway membership gives you access to thousands of designer products from gala gowns to office wear to accessories and sunglasses. And it allows you to have a rotating closet while reducing your consumption and your impact on the environment. So that is RTRFashionly promo code and you can use it at renttherunway.com.